We're going to go into our Old Testament reading um, here uh, and then our New Testament reading. We are going through the book of Romans, a verse by verse, uh, and we are in Romans 3.27 through 28, and our Old Testament reading is going to be Genesis 15, 4 through 6. And kind of what we do here at Corner Canyon, maybe a little different than what you're used to, we go verse by verse of the Bible because we think all the Bible is the Word of God. All of it builds us up and grows us in our Christian faith and our walk in serving Christ. And so we're, we're a Bible-preaching church. That's, that's our ultimate authority and but we do an old and a new testament reading because both the old and the new testament point to the person and work of jesus christ so looking first at genesis 15 4 through 6 hear now the holy inspired infallible word of the lord and behold the word of the lord came to him this man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and the number of the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, him, so you, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That concludes our Old Testament reading. Now our New Testament reading is Romans 3:27 through 28, just two verses um, here. So. I want to look at these carefully. Hear now the holy inspired word of God. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. Let's pray that God would uh, bless the preaching and the reading and uh, just the teaching of God's holy word this morning. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your truth. Um, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease, that as your word goes forth, you would transform hearts and lives, and that if someone is here this morning that has not placed their trust and their confidence in you, Lord, that you would change their heart and save them through the preaching of your word, and that you would bring salvation to this church, whether it's in person or in the live stream, Lord, we pray for blessings and salvation, for your word is powerful. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, and amen. So before uh, I was married and had kids and was a pastor, uh, what I would do on my spare time, I was just telling Kira this, that uh, I would read books on philosophy and theology because, quite frankly, I'm a huge nerd. I would just read them, and I would read like two a week. I would just like love to just look at just different points of view and study it and study the Bible. I was a huge reader. I still do that now. You're like, pastors don't study the Bible anymore? No, I don't mean that. But I did a lot of studying uh, in those days. Um, but now that I have two small children and I have to research and write a sermon every week, um, that habit of mine has, you know, kind of fallen on hard times. So now what I do is I, when I'm cleaning, helping my wife clean the house, wash the dishes, or driving, or any kind of like mindless task that I'm performing, what I do is I, I listen to my, you know, AirPods, uh, I listen to lectures, sermons, and on you know, the Bible, philosophy, and theology. And um, this week I was listening to uh, uh, one such, you know, uh, lecture or discussion, uh, and uh, it was, I was doing some very mindless task, so able to concentrate. I find that it just makes dishwashing so much easier for me personally. You're just like sitting there, wash, wash. You're like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore, you know. But if you've got something going in here, it's pretty good. So, um, it was a discussion between William Lane Craig, who is a Christian, and then Walter Sinnott Armstrong, who is an atheist. And they were talking about a very you know, difficult issue that uh, some people struggle with, which is God and suffering. 
We're all thinking on that on some level. And so while listening to this, there was a moderator and he asked this really interesting question and it just struck me so much how he asked it and how they responded. The, the contrast, the difference between the Christian and the atheist. So this is what the moderator says. And I'm just going to read to you exactly what he says just so I don't mess it up. But he says, let us suppose that we have a person who has suffered significantly throughout this person's life. And at the end of her life, she is now facing death. From your worldview, what kind of opportunity would you give her or what kind of advice or what kind of consolation, a sort of practical benefit would you provide for that person based on your worldview? And I want to ask both of you that question. And he says, you know, Walter, why don't you go ahead? And this is what the atheist had to say. And I found this very interesting. And he has to make, you'll see, he has to make assumptions to have anything that's remotely comforting here that the... That's not in the question itself. But this is what he says. I would tell her, this is the atheist, Walter Sinnott Armstrong. I would tell her that she has done a lot of good things in her life. I would assume, if she's a friend of mine, how convenient is that, huh? That'll be true, he says. And that she should be thankful for all the experience that she has had and all the people that she has been able to love and help, assuming that they, she's done those things, right? And all the people who have loved her and effects that they've had on her life. And that's the most we can expect, he says. And that's enough. That's a lot of help to other people. Okay. Assumptions made there. What if the person didn't live a great life? What if, you know, he's just assuming that to make this easier on himself. Craig, the Christian, doesn't make those kind of assumptions. He says just, I would try to assure her of God's unfailing love for her. That as she goes through these deep waters, that God will be with her and that he will guide her through the death to the other side and that there awaits for her if she will trust in God and his grace through Jesus Christ, a glorious life of unspeakable joy that awaits her. And that this transition from physical life here to everlasting life is but a transition from a cramped, narrow foyer into the grand banquet, a hall of God's eternity. And therefore, she can face this with courage and with hope that she is not alone. What a difference, isn't it? You comfort somebody and you just, when you look at this, you see how amazing, what a comfort, what a consolation the gospel is to a person who's about to die. And as a pastor, I have, I've, you know, seen people face death um, and close to death. Uh, I've had loved ones that have, uh, you know, minutes, hours, days away from death, talking to them, very worried, very concerned about what's going to happen to them. You see, when a person is about to die, they have lived their life. It's, their life is done, so to speak. It's coming to this end, and they're at their weakest. There's nothing they can do can't get baptized especially if you've got like a few minutes left and you're gonna like throw someone in a pool i mean come on yeah can't get baptized you got minutes left you know you're someone who gets hit by a car you're kind of you know one of those dramatic movie scenes you're holding them in your arms you're like let's let's try to throw you in a pool really quick you know i mean that's not gonna happen so you don't have time to baptize them the only hope that a person has in these last minutes is the gospel and nothing else. The gospel that we are saved by faith alone, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, for eternal life. That is the essence of the gospel message. And if you add something to that message, like good works or baptism, then this gospel message is no longer good news to someone who is about to die. And the gospel means good news. And so, you know, it, they, it's not good news because they can't do anything. They're at their weakest state. They can't do anything to save themselves. 
So if that, if that view is true, then this provides no comfort, no hope to those who are dying. It's not good news. And it isn't just adding to faith that takes away this comfort, but it's also kind of making a high demand of faith, this kind of high demand faith that people have that in order to be saved, you have to have like a Superman faith, a super duper faith, you know, in order to have eternal life. And people that do this, they really make faith into a work here that if you have this great and mighty faith, then you'll be saved. But the issue is, if you set some high demand for faith, how do you even know you're meeting that demand in the first place? How do you know that you're going to be saved? How do you know that you have enough faith to make it if you have some mighty requirement for faith? And this is especially true for people who are so weak and so beat down, they can't even speak and they're about to die. I've been with family that have been in the situation. They, they have nothing to, to, they have no strength left to bring out some strong Superman faith. They have but minutes away from death. But you see, thankfully, the gospel is clear. And Paul lays it out that there is a difference from this high demand kind of religious viewpoint and faith. Faith and works are distinguished clearly. Faith is an empty hand that receives a gift. And here, Paul outlines the nature of faith is such that you can't boast in it. You can't say, oh, my faith is great and terrific. If it were, if your faith were wonderful and terrific and that's what saved you, then you could brag. But he says, you can't boast here. Look at Romans 3.27 through 28 here. He says, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. You can't boast about your salvation. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, declared righteous. You're vindicated. God sees you as perfectly righteous by faith apart from works of law. And so he says, yeah, you're, you're saved here apart from good, you know, doing these good works. And people have said, well, works of law, I've heard people say this before. Works of law just refers to Jewish ceremony, so we can kind of put another works in there. But, and there were some scholars that took that approach, but as time has waned and gone on, that's fallen on hard times because works of law, if you read Romans, it, it's broader than that. It includes any moral effort, any trying or achieving whatsoever. And this is really clear when you read Romans 2, 14 through 15, that works of law here in the Greek ergonomu that this refers to any strivings, any moral effort at all, any laws that you make up even that you're striving for. Romans 2, uh, 14 through 15. It says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, they do not have the law of Moses. They don't know about circumcision or sacrifice. They don't know any of this. They're Gentiles. By nature, do what the law requires. The moral aspects of the law, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So works of law here are written on our hearts. It's a broad category that in, includes any striving, any achieving, anything at all to save ourselves. No good work, no nothing can save us. And I love the way the great uh, philosopher and theologian Jonathan Edwards puts it reading this passage. It is evident that when the apostle says we are not justified by works of law, that he excludes all our own virtue, goodness, or excellence. By that reason he gives, that boasting might be excluded. It's everything. Anything that would cause you to be like, I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. I'm so amazing. Look at my faith. It's so cool. It prevents any of that and only puts the focus on God and his glory. Now, all of this assumes a distinction between the faith in salvation and good works. That there is a difference between good works, that that's different from the act of faith. 
And this has been called throughout the history of the church, the law gospel distinction. This is, some people think, well, that's a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. No, because law and gospel, as we saw from Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The law gospel distinction goes throughout the Bible. It's not just Old Testament, New Testament, or Old Testament versus New Testament. This is the fundamental distinction between doing and believing, a striving and achieving and just receiving. This is a distinction between resting and earning, or the distinction between demand and promise, as some would say. I love the way that uh, Michael Horton describes it was my professor in seminary. He says, the law tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what God has done for us in Christ. And so this is one of the most important distinctions in all the Bible. You lose the law gospel distinction and you lose the gospel. You lose biblical Christianity. You lose the whole thing. And this is not just my opinion. This is the opinion of Christians throughout the history of the church. Uh, so I think starting with Paul and Jesus, quite frankly, and this is what uh, one Christian thinker uh, 500 years ago, something like that. It's been a long time, right? I think 500 years is pretty, that's a, that's a good chunk. He said this about the law gospel distinction, and this is an issue in his day. Ignorance of this distinction, this is Theodora Beza, by the way. Ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of abuses which corrupts, uh, is corrupted and still corrupts Christianity. Why is this? People always turn the law into something easy. Just try your best. And the gospel into something Difficult. Got to have super duper faith. As if the gospel were nothing than more than a second law or a more perfect law than the first. And so, yeah, he says people have this tendency to make the gospel, you know, more challenging, more difficult. Um, and they turn faith into a work. And I have heard Christians say, I've heard teachers say, well, the whole Bible is the gospel. Every, all the Bible's gospel. And that is not true. I'm sorry when it says, you know, you have to keep all of the law or you're under a curse. That's not good news. I don't know. Like that gives me a straight up anxiety attack. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Yeah, not good news. It's like I'm not I can't be perfect for five minutes. So, yeah, that is not good news. That's going to like keep me up till 4 a.m. I'm not going to sleep a blink with that. And so what people do is they, is, they, is they try to say, okay, let's make this workspace religion. They have like a legalistic religion and they kind of have these high demands. And so what people do so often is they take, they take law and they take gospel and they put them in a blender and they just make it into this like, you know, amorphous thing because they're just an indistinguishable, kind of like this indistinguishable mound. It's like a hillock of just mixed together, kind of like fry sauce. You know how fry sauce is? You know, you don't, you don't know when the ketchup begins and ends and when the mayonnaise, you know, you don't know. It's just kind of like, it's like this amorphous mound. It's just there, all mixed together. It's like a gospel. Law and gospel just kind of merged into this giant mound of sadness and legalism. And, you know, you're, you're eating it. You can taste a little bit of law in there. You're like, you know, do your best. It's like a little taste of it. You can kind of taste the ketchup and fries. So I can taste, you can kind of taste it. It's a hand, but it's just like this amorphous mound here, you know? It tastes a little bit of grace. Obviously, I'm really into food. You guys can tell, right? I mean, come on. Um, it tastes a little, little bit of mayonnaise. It tastes a little bit of grace. You know, God will make up the rest. And it's all blended together, you know? And so you never know where you're standing with the Lord because grace becomes, you know, okay, do your best and God will make up the rest. It's kind of like this 
combination. It's like a lost bull combo here. But you see, we don't want to say law is do your best. We don't want to say grace is God will make up the rest. We don't want to say that's what grace and law is. We want to teach pure law and pure grace. The law demands perfect, perpetual obedience. Grace says Jesus did it all. And so this is the distinction that Paul has in Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Destroys the very concept. So it has to be either pure law Pure grace. And pure law is not do your best. It's be perfect. And this shows the perfect righteousness and holiness of God and Jesus Christ. How the law, if you look at the law, it actually doesn't make you feel righteous. Like, let me make up a high demand that we can kind of, you know, kind of keep the bar where I can make myself feel good. No, it's, be, it's perfection. And then that destroys self-righteousness. People think, I'm pretty good. I gave to the poor. Well, what about like all the imperfect thoughts you had driving on the freeway to go help the poor? What about those? And so I love the way Luther puts it. The law is a divinely sent Hercules to attack and kill the monster of self-righteousness. It's true because it's not, you know, do your best. It's perfection. 100% of the time, not 99%, 100%. Now the gospel also does this because it all says that Jesus did it all for us. The gospel is not, okay, you're going to go 50%. And then God's going to go the other 50. He's going to, you know, you go halfway on the marathon. You know, you're all tired. God's like, I'll carry you the rest of the way. And, you know, that's how it goes. You go 50. He goes the other 50. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God carries you the entire way. That is the gospel. He carries you through the entire process of salvation. He saves you entirely. I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories of um, Rick and Dick Hoyt. Have you guys heard that story ever? It was like popular in like the NBC News like, I don't know, eight years ago. Okay, I'm the only one that's heard it, evidently. But it's, it's an amazing father-son team. So Rick was, was born severely uh, physically disabled. He is not able to run or to walk at all. He's in a wheelchair. Has very limited you know, motor function. And so uh, Dick is his dad, and so Rick commented to, to Dick that he wanted to run and do a triathlon. And that involves swimming, which is, you know, pretty intense. It's all those things. You're running many miles and you're swimming. And so what his father did, and this is so amazing, and he did this for many, many years before he passed on. What he did was he would take his son and he would just run him in a wheelchair the entire race. And you see his son, he's so happy. You know, because it brought his son so much joy to feel like he was a part of something that he can't do. And he would, he would just run miles and miles with his son in a wheelchair. And he would swim just so much with his, his son's in a raft. And his, like he's got a rope around him. And he's swimming. He's swimming. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And he's doing everything so he can win the race for his son. He's just carrying his son through this entire thing. And this is such a beautiful display of love. And that's what actually NBC News said. It says this is the greatest love story that's ever been, hold, ever been told. But that's not true. The gospel is the greatest love story that's ever been told. That Jesus, by his perfect life, he carries me through everything. That is the greatest love story. He carries me through my suffering, through my pain. He has entirely saved me. Jesus is enough. Jesus does everything, and that causes me not to hate him or to want not, would want not want to follow him, but that causes me to love him. And I can never be self-righteous. All I can be is thankful because Jesus carries me the entire way. 
And so this is why Paul distinguishes so sharply in the Bible between law on one hand and the gospel to protect the perfect love and grace, the pure, holy, the pure grace and love of God and the pure holiness and justice of God. And you see this in Galatians 9 through 12, 3, 9 through 12. So then those who are of, who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That sound like law or gospel to you? Sounds like gospel, right? Look at the next verse. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all of the things. Not some of the things, not do your best and God will make up the rest. By all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That's like law or gospel to you. Law, that's not good news. That's like, that's like, oh my goodness, I've never done that for a single minute. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's gospel. And here's the point. This is, he makes it so sharp and so clear that people who don't like this distinction, I've heard someone say, well, that's just not in the Bible. Paul made that up or something. I've heard someone say that. But he says, but the law is not of faith. Law and gospel, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them perfectly. All the time. So yeah, this is a thing that he really distinguishes. And we want to look at what makes faith, faith, and what makes work a work. I mean, in some sense, they're both acts that a person does. And so what makes faith so different than a, than a work, right? We want to think about that. And so the first thing that distinguishes a work from a faith is that faith in salvation is not morally difficult to do. It's simply, as I said before, receiving God's grace. And look at uh, John 1 to see this, just that faith is, is even spoken of as just the act of reception, of just the act of receiving. John 1, 12, but to all who, didn't, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So all who received him, how do they receive him? The Bible tells us that you receive by faith. And so this is what the act of faith is compared to throughout. It's also as a gift. You receive a gift. Uh, on the flip side, works is something that you strive and achieve, you do to earn something. Doesn't sound like, frankly, uh, good news there. It sounds like a job, like a paycheck, right? Or I love the way that Romans kind of brings out, Romans 4, 4, 3, 5, brings out the grace and the paycheck kind of analogy. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He earned it. You know that if your employer doesn't pay you, you can actually like take them to court. They owe it to you. They have to pay you, right? You're like, wow, I'm getting good advice from Pastor Nate on job stuff. But, you know, I mean, no, it's, it's amazing. That's how much they, they owe it to you. And so it's, it's a job. You know, your boss gives you your check. You're not like, oh, I can't believe you gave me this amazing gift. It's like, give me my paycheck. Why is it not, you know, kind of thing. That's how people are sometimes. Um, verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So it, it isn't the fact that faith is filled with like, you know, pixie dust or magical stuff that makes it so wonderful and so terrific and like a wonderful virtue. No, because he, he says he declares us, God declares us righteous when we are sinful, wicked, and ungodly. So that faith is not that majestic because you're ungodly when God declares you righteous. This is a type of faith we are saved by. This is a type of faith that's imperfect. 
I love the display of imperfect faith. Not that I'm like saying you should have an imperfect faith, like I'm promoting that, but because we are all weak and we all struggle. The man in the Gospel of Mark who has his son healed, Jesus says, you know, do you, do you believe? He's like, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus saw his weak faith and healed his son in mercy. God has mercy. Christ has mercy, even in weak faith. And so for someone to be saved, all you need to have is the weakest faith because all it is is an instrument. It's receiving God's grace when you are presently ungodly, declared righteous when ungodly. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel like when you receive like a gift on, we're coming up to Christmas. I think I heard a Christmas song. This, was that a Christmas one of those? Maybe, no. Okay, it was. Okay, I'm like doubting myself on stage. Um, it was a Christmas song, okay? And so we're getting close to Christmas. And so when you get gifts at Christmas, do you like start bragging about like, look at how I received this gift. Oh, so amazing. You don't do that. Think about when you receive gifts. You don't like brag or flex. I mean, yeah, I mean, you get it like in a car or something, you show it off to your friends, but you don't like be like, look at how I received that car. You don't do that. No. You just receive it and you don't brag about the act of reception. I can remember when I was 13 years old and my parents um, got uh, the newest Legend of Zelda. And I was, you know, I think it was Orcarina of Time. Yeah. And so I got that. I opened that sucker up. And I ran around the house screaming, thanking them. <laughs> That's what I did. Because I was thankful to my parents. Because all the other kids at school had Legend of Zelda or Ocarina of Time. I wanted it too. And so I was so thankful to them. I didn't like brag about like, oh man, I received Zelda. I'm so amazing how I received it. Oh yeah, I received it. Look at my wrist. No, it didn't do that. I was just thankful to the extent that I ran around that, the house like a crazy person. Um, if I had iPhones, then my parents could like literally blackmail me with that information. Um, so the fact that the gospel is described as a free gift prevents us from kind of patting ourselves as a, on the back here. And, you know, I think there's no better passage to go to than Ephesians uh, 2, 8 through 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Can't pat yourself on the back. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So, like, the question people have is, okay, if it's just that easy to receive the gospel, then, Nate, why doesn't everybody receive it? Why doesn't everybody do it? Well, I don't want to say the gospel is hard, but we make it hard. We make it hard on ourselves. Um, anybody who has small kids knows this. You ask your kid to do the simplest thing. They could be, like, three or four, and they're like, can you, can you pick up that one toy? <gasps> Oh, this is what Kenny does. He's like, like, it's like asking him to do one thing. is like, you know, it's like, dude, I just asked you to take the, the toy and put it in the basket. I didn't ask you to like, you know, like run a marathon or, you know, take off your skin or something. I didn't ask you something hard. I'm not asking you to go through surgery here. Put the toy, put it in the basket. It's, he's, you know, because he's pridefully stubborn. He doesn't want to listen. And so, Kenny makes it hard on himself. I hope he doesn't listen to this when he's 13. <laughs> like rebel against me, you know? Um, you know, Kenny makes it hard on himself. It's not like taking a toy and putting it in the basket is that difficult, but we make it hard on ourselves. Now, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, I struggle with receiving unconditional love. Uh, you know, we're, 
in a society that, you know, especially young millennials are very much perfectionistic, work very hard and uh, strive very hard and have high standards for yourself. And so we're used to, you know, being conditioned, working hard and conditioning ourselves to work harder and harder. And that when we work hard, we get more stuff from it. And so we have trouble receiving a gift, unconditional love. And so what, we, what I'll do sometimes, someone gives me a gift and I'll just give it right back, right? And, and, but like in a different form. Um, and so we have trouble receiving gifts because of pride, because of perfectionism. We've been conditioned in certain ways. And so it is hard for prideful people, even like myself, to receive grace. It's, it's a struggle sometimes. Uh, it's uh, physically, I mean, it's not like hard in that sense, but it's, we make it hard uh, at times by our pride. And, and we, we, we do all sorts of things to try to uh, struggle with that. But yeah, the Holy Spirit uh, uses a law in our lives to show us that we are not perfect, that's, that's what the law is used for. Um, and so the law is used to say, you, you don't have a choice. You have to take this gospel. You have to receive this. Because the law is for um, the hard-hearted people that can be prideful sometimes, like myself. We all struggle with that. The law says you can't do it, so you have to go to Jesus. And, but the gospel is for the broken-hearted, for those who know that they are not good, that they're at the end of their rope, that they got nothing left. That's who the gospel is for. It's easier for someone to receive the gospel who was brokenhearted, who's going through trauma because they got, they got nothing else to hold on to other than to receive that gift. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that once you are saved, you shouldn't grow in your faith. Like, I'm like, that's Nate. He's like the anti-grow your faith pastor kind of guy. No, no. We, we do and we should grow our faith. That's, that's a good thing. And there is a distinction between saving faith and growing faith. Once we receive Christ, our faith can be often small, but as time goes on, it wanes, it grows throughout many different seasons. And I'm going to say the law gospel distinction in our Christian life helps our faith grow. You see, the law shows me every day that I have failed. And then every day I'm like, well, I, I kind of messed up here. I really screwed up here. So I'm just going to run to Jesus. So every day the, the law there is meant to destroy your self-righteousness, makes you, makes you run to Christ to remind you, you can't run that race on your own. You can't run that race at all. You need Jesus to carry you the entire way. And so what's amazing is that this helps us grow in our Christian life. Like um, Rick, that guy who loved his father and his father would just love him so much and just run through those races. He, he said uh, in an interview that he would just, he would love the fact if he could just walk for one day, not so he can go out and just do things for himself, but so he could run his dad through a race. And so it made him love his father more. And so the law gospel distinction makes us love God more because we can't do it. We need Jesus for everything. And that causes in our hearts greater growth, love, and faith in Jesus Christ. This is how Paul describes what the Galatians were doing. They were not keeping the law gospel distinction in their own personal lives. Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It is before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law? or by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You know, you started by being dependent on me radically, and now you're all into the self-reliance. Is that how it works? No. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it, is in, it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? 
So we don't move beyond the law gospel distinction, as I've heard people say. We grow deeper and deeper into that distinction, realizing we can't do it. We can't run the, the race. Jesus, will you please carry me through? Will you please help me, Jesus? And when we do that, we grow deeper and deeper into the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. And then we want to be more like Jesus in our lives. And uh, we grow in our relationship in, with Jesus, we want to be more like him. Like the kid is uh, the, the kid Rick that was carried. He wanted to be more like his dad. He wanted to carry his own dad through the race, like like he did. One final Alaska uh, uh, consideration, kind of going back to the beginning, is is that when the gospel is a gift and we do receive it, it's not an immoral achievement, and that's a great thing in these life death situations, because we know that if we present the gospel to somebody who maybe was never a Christian their entire life, that if they trust in Christ in that moment when they're the weakest, they go to heaven. And you see, if you deny the gospel and you try to make it into a work, then you really ruin that comfort, that consolation to someone who's going to die in a minute, two minutes. Because at some point in our lives, I mean, I've been confronted with this given my line of work and given um, just... Uh, that I've had, you know, grandparents pass on. I've been confronted with people that have, uh, that have, they're going to die very shortly. And so we want to know as Christians, how, how do we deal with someone who is going through this, who's on the edge of eternity? What can we give to someone who's dying? How can we comfort them? You see, this gospel message, this is the only way to do it. If you try to put something in faith, try to beef, uh, beef up faith, you'll never know if you're going to actually be saved. The person who's at their weakest is not going to know. If you add rituals, if you add baptism, whatever you add to it, the person, you can't comfort that person. There's no comfort for them because they, they'll, in, in their mind, if you're giving them a false gospel, they'll, they're going to think they're condemned and they're going to feel guilt and shame. You see, making the gospel a gift makes all the difference in the world to someone who's dying, someone who's at the end of their life, very, very weak, at their wit's end. I, I remember my father and I were um, confronted with a situation like that with my grandfather. Died about four years ago. And uh, my grandfather was, was fading fast. He was very weak and dying. He had been dying for quite some time. To be honest, it was just really tough. And my father was there in California, and I was here at the church as in Utah. I've gone out to see him a few times before he passed on. And, you know, my dad asked, what do we, what do I, you know, Papa Larry's dying. What do we, what do we do? How do we, how do we handle this? And I just said, look, dad, just preach the gospel to him. There's nothing, you know, more we can do. He was a uh, lifelong atheist, um, was into, uh, he was a professor at, uh, Fullerton, and uh, he loved existentialist philosophy and so on. So he was an atheist, and sometimes he'd go to agnosticism, he'd go back and forth. But, you know, I just, I, I just told my dad, just, just tell him about Jesus, preach the gospel to him. And so, um, and, and so my dad did that, and it came time for, uh, my dad called us, called my brother, my sister, and me up, and we all had to say goodbye to him over the phone, because I was here in Utah, and he was going really, really fast. And so what I did is I presented the gospel to him. I told him the story of a thief on the cross who at the last moment received Christ as Lord. 
And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I told him that all he had to do was to receive Christ for eternal life. And I begged with my, pleaded with him to receive Christ. And he was so weak. He was so out of it, he couldn't even talk. My dad said that when he talked to me, he saw a happy expression on his face and he responded well to it. And my, the hope I have, the hope that the gospel gives me and to family members who have passed on, that I, I, I hope and I trust that I will see my grandfather in heaven is the hope of the gospel. That's all I have. That's all you have. That's the hope that we have is to offer anybody that gift. And at any moment they take that gift, they will have eternal life. Not by a powerful Superman hand that receives you know, that gift, but by a weak, barren, empty, sinful hand that's about to be facing eternity. By that kind of faith, they are saved. So that all the glory can go to Jesus Christ that all the hope and all the praise will go to him. And that is the hope we have for loved ones. I want to read one of my favorite hymns that expresses this idea so well. Rock of Ages cleft for me. It says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless looking to thee for grace. Foul I to fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. If you haven't this morning already, hide yourself in the perfect righteousness and satisfaction of justice in Jesus Christ. Alone. Let us pray.